Today's collaboration on Everything is Workable is with Erica West, otherwise known as E. We met at Feminist Camp, where E shared a bit about the work that they do in a faith organization, but it was the comment that they made about defining the world at the intersections that led me to invite them to be on the show. In this episode, E talks about their experience growing up in a church community and the ongoing process of naming what faith is like for themselves, as well as how the intersections of class, race, gender expression, and sexual orientation inform everything they do and how they show up in the world. One thing that E came back to again and again while we talked was the importance of process in our lives, whether it's the process of understanding our identities or how that influences how we see the world, or the process of defining our own practice of faith. Seeing the world as always in process is something E says helps them and can help any of us to be more effective in the work that we do. This episode also really highlights the wisdom and insight that we can have at any age. If you enjoyed this episode or other episodes of Everything is Workable, please leave a review wherever it is that you are listening to this podcast. And now on to my interview with E. Thank you so much for taking time to collaborate on an episode of Everything is Workable. Sweet. Thank you for inviting me. And I always start off by asking my guests to speak a bit about their background and what brought them to the work that they're doing. And I mm-hmm. usually frame it in like a Buddhist-y way with the question of like, what was your experience of moving from I am suffering to there is suffering? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, let me think. So... Okay, so I grew up um, in the Washington, D.C. metropolitan area, specifically in Alexandria, Virginia. But I always say the sort of like long-winded Washington, D.C. metropolitan area because the DMV, as we call it, is um, a really multifaceted place. And when you kind of live between the three places, it tends that you don't just hang out in one place all the time. It tends that you like go to D.C. for some stuff or you go to Maryland for other things or you're in Virginia. So I like went to school in Virginia, um, and I also lived, obviously, in Virginia. That's where my address was. But I went to church at a predominantly Black, or almost exclusively Black for most of my life, um, Methodist church for the entirety of my life until I left home at 18 to go to school. And um, I also spent a lot of time in D.C. because my father is from D.C., and it's like very close to where I live. I say all that because the church I went to, of what, like I said, a Methodist church, very much black church tradition. I enjoyed it in a lot of ways. That's still to this day, like the sort of worship tradition that I value the most and that feeds me the most. But also, and this is probably a common story, but the, the kind of culture that comes with a black church and especially a black church in the DC metro area that was pretty affluent looking back um, with, a, with some economic diversity, but not as much as other churches in the area meant that some beliefs that were cultural beliefs or otherwise like not necessarily native to the Black experience or the Black church um, did infiltrate. And so one of those things was homophobia. And it's kind of interesting. I only remember a couple instances uh, as a kid um, of hearing like blatant homophobia being like spewed from the pulpit. Um, usually it was like a guest preacher that would kind of go off the rail that usually had very little to do with actually what we were talking about. I can't remember of like one sermon where the, the like express purpose was to talk about, was basically to like gay bash, which is like one sermon too many. But I mean, considering <laughs> I was at church like five days a week for most of my life, I, I mean, the, it was better that it was one. I know some people have to deal with that all the time, not to compare suffering, but all that to say, 
um, growing up, I definitely experienced like I heard a lot of homophobic things said in my house. Um, and my parents, you know, they, I'm an only child. They love me very much. But my mom particularly had a pretty limited idea of what I was going to become and what kind of person I was going to be along the way. And as far as gender and sexuality, that meant I was going to be straight, hyper feminine, not nearly as opinionated as I ended up probably being, even though she's very opinionated. So it's kind of funny. But anyway, and so my father and I had a good relationship. So he would kind of like mitigate that. But he also had internalized a lot of homophobia. I mean, especially in the 90s and early 2000s, and even really into the two, early 2010s, like that was very much in vogue, right? Was to gay bash. That was, it was not like, you weren't popular if you were supporting gay people, especially in post AIDS crisis. So especially in DC, where there's a disproportionate amount of people who have HIV and AIDS, and there's a high uh, gay population. So there's a lot of terrible misconceptions that can come out of that reality. So when I got old enough to start realizing what was going on and that I definitely wasn't straight, which was pretty early, I think, um, about 10 when I first was like, huh, maybe I should think about this some more. And then I kind of suppressed it for a while. Mm-hmm. Um, eventually got to a point about high school where I was like, okay, I'm not fooling anybody. Most of all, I'm not fooling myself. Puberty has hit. I was in full swing. And I'm really not thinking about boys anymore at all. And so at that point, it got pretty difficult to be in my house. Um, all the things that I was hearing that were homophobic were coming from a place of like religious understanding, uh, according to like my parents and mostly my mom. And all of it also was tied in with like gender presentation. So like any sort of quote unquote deviant thing I would do, it, uh, even down to just like dressing like more tomboyishly was very much vilified and amplified to a just unnecessary degree. And so it actually led to me getting outed in a really, really terrible way when I was 16. And then that led to about a year and a half of a pretty consistent emotional abuse, um, getting basically thrown out of the house a couple of times, and also dealing with a lot of bullying at school, um, bullying even from students and administrators. And that was made extra difficult by the fact that Home also wasn't safe, and everyone at the school knew my mom. So it was just a very, very bad time. And during this time, um, this is very much where I am suffering, right? I'm, you know, still going to church all the time, but still, you know, going through all of this in every other sphere of life, pretty much, and having to pretend that it's not happening in front of church people because everyone knew my family, and it's sort of a you know, you some things are, are kept in one sphere and some things are kept in another and you don't mix them. Like that's sort of the spoken and sometimes unspoken modus operandi. And so I like played by that. Um, I was definitely living in a, a place of fear and that's where I was. And so it was a really rough time and I actually ended up being pretty suicidal and I tried to, uh, I attempted suicide. And my best friend actually saved my life, but that was like the lowest, one of the lowest points definitely of my life. So after that happened, I was like, okay, like something has got to give because I, I can't be, I can't be living like this. So it took a long process. I basically started to pull myself away from the idea of like the God that I thought I knew growing up, which was very much a God that I had been given. It was not something I thought about critically at all. Um, I was sort of just over church. I was over all kinds of like anything like that. Um, and then it, it sort of ended with my senior year. I had a whole incident, which is very separate, but also terrible, um, involving my church and just like a lot of pettiness around my father and people taking that, that out on me. 
And it, it was just a terrible time for that to have happened, considering I was about to go off to school and I probably needed some support in that time period yeah. um, and not people being antagonistic. So it was not a good time. <laughs> um, and so from there, the summer passed and I actually wasn't going to church for the first time in my life every Sunday because my parents were really frustrated with my church after the incident that had happened towards the end of my senior year. And um, when I went to college in little Williamsburg, Virginia, which is a very small town that's most known for colonial Williamsburg, the colonial reenactment, like um, just colonizer, like play village <laughs> that brings in most of the money and the tourism industry there. Um, I also went to school there. I was like, okay, I need to take a break from church. Uh, I need to take a break from anything related to God. I had a lot of just hurt and anger. But I was also, you know, I went into college being like, maybe I'll try my hand at being straight. Like, I'll try it. I'll sort of cosplay straightness. I like cosplay <laughs> straightness. <laughs> wow. Yeah, that's how I think of it now. Also, that's like the reverse of what most people do when they go to college. Right, right. It is. It is. And it didn't last very long. <laughs> it didn't. Thank goodness. Um, I like to think there was some divine intervention here, too, because I chose to have a roommate who was a random roommate, even though I had a couple people from my my high school who had gone who I was actually friends with. And I decided, you know, let me like try to actually branch out when I get to college. And so it, it turned out that my roommate um, was gay and like very gay and very open and had a lot of support from her family and all that. So after, you know, a couple weeks of me kind of trying to play straight and quickly realizing that that was not going to work, my roommate, we were just sitting one day and we had this interesting habit of being in the room completely silent, but in a very comfortable silence, even though we hadn't known each other very long. Mm -hmm. um, and she was also a student athlete, so she was almost never in the room. So we, every moment when I was in the room and she was in the room and we were there together, even if we weren't having a full on conversation, it was always like a, a good time to be there. And I remember I was like ironing my clothes because back then I was the kind of, the kind of person who would like iron my clothes every day. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to get back to that person in some ways, um, at least that aspect. But anyway, I was talking to my roommate that day about how I just had a really hard time, like saying, literally saying the words that like, I'm gay. I never said it to myself, even in my head. I'd never been able to say it. Definitely not aloud. I couldn't say it to other people. Um, people asked, you know, I would admit that I wasn't straight really but it was always sort of in like a percentages way which doesn't make a lot of sense and so she was like you know gay is okay and she had she was a surfer and she had this very laid-back kind of vibe so she said it just like so nonchalantly and I remember you know I'd heard that in different places like in schools a few people were like gay is okay and the human rights campaign had had the whole equal sign campaign online so it was starting mm -hmm. to be it, you know so there was some momentum definitely picking up it wasn't the first time I'd ever heard it but it was something about her saying it someone that I already respected a lot and could see was very secure in themselves it, it just sort of clicked for the first time and I was like yeah like gay is okay and I just like had this revelation and she was like okay and I just like, went back to what she was doing and then um, until my junior year, when I like did this sort of open mic ish thing, I basically told my story in front of a lot of people at my my undergrad, and she, I invited her to be there because I was like, I think that you would appreciate it. That was the first time I think she realized because I blatantly said so that she had really deeply influenced my life in that moment. But otherwise, I think she probably hadn't thought about it twice. Which is interesting how one moment can be like literally you know, earth shifting for one person and it can be like completely just <laughs> another moment <laughs> for another person. Um, 
And so after that, I was like, okay, well, let me start doing like taking some steps to align myself. So, you know, I ended up dating someone in my hall who I had been kind of trying to suppress feelings for. Um, I met other folks and was able to like say, you know, I'm gay to those folks and that was good. And then that summer, and this is sort of where it starts to shift from the I'm suffering and coming out of suffering a bit and healing and all that to the, the you know, there is suffering. So I was like, okay, I should do an internship coming out of the DC culture and also being at a competitive um, undergraduate institution that was like very much an expectation. And I just applied to, I think, one place. I don't even think I got around to applying to another place. But the one place I applied to was the Human Rights Campaign. Um, somehow I got the position, which was a religion and faith intern. And so I was the only one, the only religion and faith intern. And I went in, you know, I really didn't know very much. I had only taken like one class in college up to that point that informed any sort of like terminology or history of queer folks and trans folks. And I had just taken it that spring. So it was very fresh, but I didn't know a lot. I still didn't have a ton of like queer community at that point in school or anywhere else. Um, so I went to DC. Um, that was a really transformative summer. And so even though now I have a pretty like detailed critique of HRC that I definitely did not have in 2014, it was transformative for me. And so I always appreciate that space for what it was and the people that I met, many of whom still inform me and are friends of mine today. Um, mm -hmm. So that was the first time I really felt queer community. It was my first summer. I was 18 or 19 rather at that point. So I was actually able to experience DC a little bit more um, since I could, you know, maneuver and have access to a few more spaces. Um, I was going to workshops and just learning all the time, just like completely a sponge. And something else that happened that was really important and still informs me now is that I met a ton of people of color who are also people of faith, um, who are, of course, also queer and trans. And that was the first time I'd ever met anyone or even, I think, probably been properly exposed to anyone who was all of these things that related to my own life. And that these were people who I didn't just run across. They were actively pouring into me having lunch with me. One of them was assigned as my mentor. She still checks in even to this day. Cool. Um, yeah, yeah. And they were elders too. So they were, I think, almost all of the ones I can think of. There were a few who were in their 20s, a few in their 30s, but most of them were over 40. And so that was, you know, possibility models are so important. And, you know, you think, you know, if I'm 19 and the only person I ever see that looks like me is me, then you can't really imagine a future. It's hard to imagine a future. But to see people who were like happy and who had lived a lot of life and were able to combine all these things and also make money doing this kind of like life giving work, it really just opened my eyes. And so um, it helped me. I mean, intersectionality at that point was like really picking up as a buzzword. And so I was able to fully see it. Um, I was able to see people living at the intersections who then were able to apply an intersectional lens to how they did their work, which was amazing. I learned a lot of things. I got a lot more comfortable with my queerness. I realized I was black that summer, which was a game changer. Um, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that was kind of big. Uh, that's yeah. late. Very well, er, I think nowadays it's late. I think a lot of people, especially I grew up upper middle class and in a place that was very post-racial right. and in Obama America for my formative years, yeah. it was like not uncommon. There are many people from my high school days, especially who like in, you could clearly see there was a shift from like that first two years of college to, to like them recognizing their blackness prior to, they were like, we were all in the same boat, just like denying, 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 trying yeah. to assimilate. 
Yeah. yeah. It's a, actually that, I mean, that's a really good point you make there about the middle class thing. Cause I like that intersection of class and race is, is definitely something it's like, um, <laughs> it's like the level of access that class can give a person can also erase noticing the marginalization that a person experiences mm-hmm, exactly uh, until certain points when like you can't <laughs> ignore it anymore right, um, right. And I'm, I'm gonna come back to that I definitely want to talk to you about intersections for sure but mm-hmm. I think um, a really key part of your story that is really meaningful is you you said the god that you've been that you'd been given and mm-hmm. you're still in the church and i think this is really fascinating so like as a buddhist i have encountered a, an awful lot it's it's interesting actually how mm-hmm. many queer black buddhist teachers there are and it's largely because there's these people who had an incredibly strong sense of community and connection through mm-hmm. their experience of church but the homophobia was the thing that created a barrier to them mm-hmm. staying in it. But they still saw the need for some structure around their spirituality or they, they were looking for that kind of community connection. And so Buddhism ended up working out for them. But right. in your case, you have, well, I am guessing you've, you've named your own God or found mm-hmm. your own God. So could you talk a bit about like that and, and how it is that... Um, I guess, like, what was your process of reconciling what you heard from some people who said they were representing the church Mm -hmm. around homosexuality versus, like, where you are now? Yes, it's definitely, well, it is a process in that it is still ongoing, and I struggle a lot continuing to reconcile, especially because um, the denomination, which, like, the United Methodist Church that I grew up in is still internationally transphobic and trans antagonistic and homophobic queerphobic like they're just not together and there's like pockets where it's better but most places it's it's not good and so that it's a difficult place to be in um, and I'm still discerning you know what exactly my next step is going to be because I'm getting to a point where I don't think I can abide in it anymore even to try to fight from the inside what I would say in terms of my process yeah definitely the first thing was being exposed to people and, and being in relationship with people who, who showed me that you could do all three. And I think we, I mean, I know we live in a world where it's like, you cannot do more than one thing at a time. You cannot walk and chew gum. If you do so, you will choke. Like that's sort of the way we go about life. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Or at least the world, I think would encourage us to go about life. Um, while at the same time, it's for some reason, like encouraging like extreme multitasking, but not doing it well. Yeah. It's very interesting. And so just meeting people who are like, okay, well, we're not going to, we can walk and chew gum and we're going to do it well. And we're going to do all this other, these other things on top of that. You know, that kind of way of living was just a, a new concept. And so just seeing that made me challenge myself, frankly, and be open to the fact that there's a different way to live in this world. And then I would say after that, it was very much an intentional process of, you know, there's sort of like these seven like clobber verses that are kind of thrown particularly at queer people. And don't even get me started on the number of verses that are used to subjugate, insert other ethnic or racial category of person here Mm -hmm. um, from the Bible. And so learning that history, which I college definitely helped with this um, was just helpful. I mean, because before, you know, you're not challenging anything. You're just hearing what the pastor has to say they may encourage you to read your Bible, but they won't eat some pastors and 
as much as I remember growing up, as much as I loved my pastors, and perhaps I was just not at this point yet in my faith or in just like my intellectual development, there wasn't a ton about like, look at the original translation, cultural context matters, right? Yeah. When you're, there just wasn't, that wasn't happening. Like that conversation was missing. And I would probably wouldn't even have been able to apply it at that point in my life. I think I needed to get to a certain season at a certain level of understanding of other things to be able to be like, okay, it's, this is also important. And so once I started doing things like that, just like investigating these sorts of things, I was like, okay, a lot of it breaks down immediately. I mean, the whole thing about colonization and Christianity immediately becomes really relevant. And then you kind of have to call the whole thing into question after that. Um, so there's yeah. that. <laughs> yeah. Like, uh, so there's that part of it. And then I think also in terms of the, moving out of a very singular, like this is, you know, I'm suffering to like, there is suffering. It made me realize that there are different groups that are going through stuff. I mean, as a black person, I was very focused once I started to care about it, um, about like the 400 years of slavery, right? Like that was mm -hmm. the thing that's important. And it is important and it still informs everything and even our DNA today. But I just frankly didn't know about the genocide of native people. I didn't know about, I didn't know, like, really know about the history um, disenfranchisement of Asian American people and mm -hmm. of all like Pacific Island people. Like I didn't know any of that kind of stuff and I wasn't really questioning it. Right. Like I just wasn't thinking about those folks when I was thinking about history, capital H. Um, and so, <laughs> you know, it was, cause important. it's over. It's over. It's over. It it's happened. Over. Like, right. Things don't yeah. like continue affecting the current day that have already happened. Like <laughs> right. what I did yesterday has absolutely no influence on today. Everyone knows Not that. at all. <laughs> Everybody knows that. We're all, we just are all accept it. We move on. Um, I was even thinking about those groups of people because in a lot of ways, and I mean, this is slightly getting better now, but for most of my life, you know, I wasn't around native people. There was like one native person I knew my entire life before I went to college. There were Asian American people definitely in my school, but we never investigate, like, there was just not a lot of talk about what happened that brought us to where we were, brought our families to where mm -hmm. we were. It was very much like, here you are today, you are an individual, which I mean, capitalism assists in this, like, hyper-individualistic culture, we're just going to deal with, like, what's right in front of us. And that's not good. So, <laughs> um, yeah, learning, like, about, I think history has been the biggest thing that's been helpful and all of this. And then when history comes, like theology, um, and so learning about different types of theologies, frankly. Um, and so particularly my junior year of school, I was in a campus ministry, and it was a really great thing for me to be in during that time of my life, particularly. And um, my campus minister is a rad guy named Reverend Max Blaylock, like this older white guy, did not trust him when I first met him. He sounds like he's straight from Alabama. He is straight from Alabama. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, from he calls it L.A., which is lower Alabama. <laughs> it's like very funny. But anyway, he ended up being, he's still one of the most like influential people I've ever met in my life. And he introduced me to liberation theologies and introduced not just me, but our entire like little cohort of folks. Cool, what's that? Yes, liberation theology uh, came out of Latin America, and basically, historically, what it was is that um, there was, I mean, war was going on um, in several countries in Latin America, and a lot of that was being fueled by the U.S., and so some Catholic priests were like, doctrine would have us to say to people who are extremely impoverished that this is what God wants for you, that, you know, suffer and like your reward will be in heaven, like that kind of stuff. 
but we cannot like look these people in the eye because we actually don't think this is what God wants for you. And so, you know, also at the same time, they're, you know, exposed, at least a lot of them were exposed to like Marxist understandings um, of the world and sort of, of naming the histories that lead to the material conditions of people, basically. Um, so like dialectical materialism and they're pairing that idea with also a new lens through which to read the Bible and basically a, a very controversial even today, but an important shift that says like God has a preferential option for the poor and God, you know, abides with the poor. So if you're reading the Bible and you're seeing like, you know, the Israelites and you're seeing like Pharaoh and the Egyptians, God is actually not hanging out with Pharaoh. God is hanging out with the Israelites, right? Like that's sort yeah. of a way of looking at it. Um, but that doesn't mean that God doesn't care about the Egyptians. It just means that God is like not over here like come on, Egyptians, let me like help y'all out a little bit more. Or at least that's like the thought. And so learning about that and then learning about, you know, a, a type of faith and understanding of God that could free people and that had freed people and had freed, you know, people out of slavery that had motivated people to rebel against slavery um, that obviously inspired priests to literally lose their lives and also to do things against their own governments that were abusing their people in Latin America and that even now in different forms it just informs people to do all kinds of things that go against systems of power. I finally was able to connect faith for the first time for myself. And so I think that was a time where I was like, okay, you know, it's important that I have this understanding, but it's also more important that this informs how I express my faith in the world, how I like when I ask questions, I always need to center people who are not in the room, people who are not thought about in the conversations. And just also recognizing that like this idea of like God being very far away and in the sky kind of um, and vengeful, like all these sorts of things. I was like, I am going to start at least questioning those things. And so now, like literally now, um, I think of God a lot about God within, which is a pretty mm -hmm. mystic idea. And I mean, transcends Christianity, obviously. So that's sort of where I'm at this moment. I hope they answered the question. <laughs> no, that's really good. It's um, my own shift because like my personal experience, I was not raised in any significant religious context, but I did go to church a bit when I was a kid. And I always did find like there was something really weird about this idea of like some dude <laughs> yep open the class I'm like uh um and it's actually been through listening to primarily these like amazing black queer buddhists specifically mm -hmm. zenju earthland manuel that the concept of god right like understanding god as love and god as action mm. and she actually turns god into a verb she says we need to do the work Ooh. of godding Yes, I love that. Yeah. And so I think, yeah, it's great. Like that exploration of, of redefining God and what that looks like is just, it's really cool. It's very powerful. So to come back to intersections, mm -hmm. uh, we met during feminist camp, which was so great. We did. Yes. Thanks so much for coming out to that. Absolutely. And you made a really brilliant statement. You said, we have to name the world at the intersections. Mm-hmm. And I just, I love that. And I think it's really important for folks to dig into it for themselves. But could you unpack that a bit and just talk about what that means to you to name the world at the intersections and what it looks like for you when you do this? Sure. Um, so yeah, when I, when I say that, I definitely mean, I mean, so first off, naming who I am, like, you know, I'm black, I'm queer, I'm still upper middle class, even though I'm doing a service program right now. So it doesn't always feel that way. 
I'm from the DMV. Like, I have a lot of salient political identities and gender nonconforming, like all these sorts of things. I'm a person of faith. They all inform the ways that I move in this world. And sometimes it, it seems, I think, especially in social justice spaces, it can be a lot easier for people who have these sort of like inherently politicized identities to name the world from that lens, right? Because it's been, it's other people have given you that. And there's no way of escaping that, at least not in the world as it currently is. And so people who are in more dominant identities sometimes feel like they can exist in this apolitical space or like they have no intersections, which it's untrue. Like we all have, none of us are just one thing. Thank goodness. That'd be so boring. And so when I say name the world at the intersections, I also mean that like when we're encountering the world, we need to encounter the world while being very cognizant of the intersections that we bring to things, mm -hmm. uh, but also looking for the places where things meet. So when I'm like walking outside, you know, down the street in my neighborhood, I can appreciate how beautiful, you know, the foliage is. It's really gorgeous in Seattle. But I can also appreciate the differentiation between the new overly, you know, expensive townhouses that are being built down the street from my house, my own 100-year-old house, and the apartments across the street that were probably built maybe like 30 years ago, right? Like mm -hmm. there are reasons for all of these things. And those things also have influence and impact on the way that the entire city functions and everything is emblematic of something else. Everything's a micro for a larger macro. It's also a way of thinking about it. And so I think that, you know, you don't constantly have to be in your head. In fact, I would definitely say get out of your head. I think that helps a lot more to be embodied. <laughs> um, but it's helpful sometimes to just recognize that nothing just is existing in a silo um, and that everything touches everything else. And so that's helpful for me. You know, something I was thinking about today, today's actually to be transparent, it's the anniversary, second year anniversary of the day that a good friend of mine was was killed actually riding across the country to raise money for affordable housing. And she has inspired me because she first was really the first person who made me understand environmental justice in a time when I like understood environmentalism as mm -hmm. a very academic exercise, but not as something that all I could like put like flesh and blood on. And I think about environmental justice as a really good thing that as a, well, of course it's a good thing, but as an umbrella term that really helps understand like the intersections of things, right? Cause we all exist within this larger environment Mm -hmm. And there's many different types of environments that we that we are impacting and that impact us, right? There's this very reciprocal or sometimes not so reciprocal <laughs> relationship. But within that, there is like, if we're talking about environmental justice, there's housing justice, there's food justice, there's racial justice, like all of the things interact within this one larger thing, but they all exist within themselves, but they also all influence each other. And so when we're talking about things, it's sort of just looking at where do they meet and when we're talking to people, it's also, and I think we do this more naturally as humans, trying to find, like, where do we meet? Where does one thing inform another thing? Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think that in explaining, at least when it comes to, like, the environmental justice things, it's very easy to do it when it comes to naming systems, I think, especially now that people are really trying to focus on being more intersectional, or at least claim to be trying. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I yeah. think there's like there's that lightweight understanding of intersectionality being multiple identities, right? <laughs> rather yeah. than like realizing like intersectionality is the experience of like for me, I am a queer woman, mm -hmm. I am a gender nonconforming queer woman, and that mm -hmm. is very different as an experience 
than a gender conforming queer woman, right? Mm-hmm, <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So there, yeah, that's like the layers. It's like what you're saying about being middle class and and not noticing that you were black until right. a certain point. Right. right? <laughs> so yeah, that that kind of it's more nuanced, I guess, than just like, well, I. I like cats and also I'm gay. Like <laughs> if only it was that easy, that'd be great. <laughs> yeah, totally. So also you said during feminist camp, I've got some quotes. Oh, oh <laughs> man. Were great. Okay. Oh yeah. So let's see what I said. You said you can't critique something unless you understand it. Mm-hmm. And I think that that is really important for people of faith for sure. <laughs> yeah given the stories that we get given mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and um I've been thinking about that in particular right now um the Buddhist community that I belong to and a lot of Buddhist communities in the west are going through some upheaval as the leaders of their communities are exposed for the sexual abuse that they committed oh no okay, okay. yeah and and it's interesting because I, I think that like critiquing something when you understand it is like being able to see the the greater influence of the culture in mm-hmm. your smaller communities. Yeah, yeah. And that kind of work. So could you just talk a bit about like how this plays out for you as a member of religious community, as somebody who is like you want to go get your master's of divinity? Yeah. So what does that look like when you know that there are there are absolutely structures in place that are absolutely patriarchal within Christian communities and absolutely homophobic and absolutely racist. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, it's definitely, it makes you operate. I think at least in my own experience, it's made me operate a lot of times from a place, I would say prior to pretty recently from a place of defense Mm -hmm. and uh, a constant one because literally sometimes you are being attacked like your identities are being attacked your communities are being attacked sometimes you literally are being attacked and told that you're not valid and that you're not loved and all that you know you're not enough all that and those messages especially because if you've grown up around them like at least I have they're really insidious and sometimes you think you've beat it or whatever but it is a process and things will come back and you'll be like what you know, why is this thought coming out of me? And it's like, well, you know, you haven't, you don't ever really beat it. You just sort of like learn to make peace with the pain or sit with it more, which I'll, I'll admit I'm reading Radical Dharma. So I got that partially from that. Um, <laughs> that is <laughs> fine. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I love that idea. I think it's excellent. But I would say that nowadays I look at it from a place of operating from a place of, of offense and that I'm tired of spending a lot of time in spaces where I constantly feel the need to be defensive, whether or not anyone's attacking me, just because there is a reasonable expectation that it could occur Mm -hmm. and that there's trauma that I'm still holding and that others around me are still holding, even if we're not naming it actively in that space at the time, because there's a history and in a spirit, one could even say in some of these spaces. So like a traditional black church service, for instance, would be a good example or even, let's be clear, also a, a white liberal church as well would be a good example of this. Because you know you could experience racism at the liberal church because there's a good expectation that they have not dealt with that in that space, even mm-hmm. though everyone probably voted for Obama both times. And then in the black church, it's like you 
I highly doubt for most black churches, because I've just not seen the evidence and other folks who do this work as well have not seen it for most places, that they're adequately grappling with sexuality, period, never mind sexualities that are seen, seen as outside of the norm. And so, of course, like that sort of thing is clearly everything is touched by patriarchy, but something like that is very clearly touched by patriarchy. And it also doesn't help that it's very obvious that even the leadership structures, like this is the bare minimum, but like we still have like the classic example of leadership, whatever, at the head of things. We have older, usually educated in a way that's deemed acceptable by the community, loud, hyper-masculine men who cis, like straight men, at the front of things, and even the ones that try to be better, it's like, look, we've had how many hundreds, if not thousands of years of this, maybe we could just try for a minute, just as a thought experiment, perhaps, to move somebody else to the front. Like, what if we just took the classic example of a leader, and then like, literally did the opposite of each one of those identities, or at least something that's not the norm, and then put that person, whoever that ends up being in the front, and just see what happens, just, just to try. And so I think that now, since I'm, but you know, this was sort of my thought process all the time when I was in a space where I felt like I needed to be intentionally in these sort of communities to like disrupt the norm. But I think I incurred a lot of spiritual violence and a lot of definitely emotional violence, I can say that, by intentionally placing myself in these spaces for a, a significant period of time. And so uh, I think right now I'm definitely in a season where I like respect people who still abide in those spaces intentionally and and people who even aren't there unintentionally but you know are just trying to make it through I get it been there but mm-hmm. I'm currently in a space where I'm like I'm going to be naming things from the outside as much as possible now I still like go to some churches and particularly I was in a church this last year that was a white liberal, very large, um, very wealthy congregation. And there was a lot of struggle there. And that was sort of a work thing that thank God as of today is over. Um, So that's exciting. Um, But I think as much as I can choose to not occupy those spaces, I'm trying to occupy spaces that are life-giving, that allow room for creativity, that meet like intentionally are centering people who have always been pushed to the margins, whose voices are just not heard in classic, especially Christian faith spaces. And also I'm engaging with ideas of of faith and wisdom outside of Christianity. Because like one thing I think about questioning everything when it comes to Christianity is that you have to acknowledge that perhaps it is not the end all be all, which I know for a lot of people, they're like, okay, you're like a heretic. And I'm like, that's fine. Most of the best people are heretics, I've noticed. (laughs) Um, So that's honestly fine. So, you know, I'm engaging with like Buddhist thought a lot recently. I have a a text right here in my, in my space, in my house, where I'm like reading some things about like queer Muslims and planning to purchase some more materials about that on social media. I follow people who are in different kinds of spiritual traditions. And my whole life, I've always had friends who were all kinds of different religions outside and just like faith traditions, period, outside of Christianity. So now it's the time, I think, as I'm moving away from a very Christocentric um, I shouldn't even say Christocentric because that's actually centering Christ and we, we don't center Christ in Christianity and that's no. half the problem. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I shouldn't say that, but a Christianity centric perspective. I'm just engaging with other ideas. And I think that that is also, people talk a lot of decolonization in Christian spaces. And I think that that is actually part of decolonization is, in, is meaningfully engaging in good faith with other ways of thinking about the world and everything beyond it. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, interfaith dialogues are great. 
Oh, amazing. Yeah, they're like the best. I love this is actually the first one that I've done for a long time. So like the first one this year. Oh, man. <laughs> okay, well, I'm glad. Okay. So my my final question mm-hmm. is always uh, really, it's just like an invitation for you to leave any offering advice, guidance, resources, anything to folks who are engaged in this kind of work or looking to be engaged in this kind of work. Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah. So Okay, so I'll say this. So my partner is actually downstairs. Uh, she was like, oh, I'm going to give you some space while you do this. I'm like, thank you, because I would just act a fool if like you're sitting here right next to me. But I'm recalling right now a conversation that we had about how it seems like a lot of people, especially a lot of people of color and particularly queer people, for many of the reasons that, Caitlin, you named earlier in regards to the like queer antagonism and queer phobia and transphobia and all these things within the church, particularly and within like churches and communities of color where there's this interesting middle space a lot of folks especially like justice kind of folks are occupying where there's an acknowledgement of spirit there's an appreciation and sometimes even active following of like the way of jesus and there's even like some engagement and i think this could be more of a tradition thing with like the old songs um, some of the verses that aren't harmful all the sort of like things that are very um ritualistic within particularly I've noticed it in black and Latinx Christian communities and some of that is that I mean obviously it's a lot of learned behavior uh, but it's also I think an intentional thing where people are like I'm going to honor something that's been passed down and that clearly got many of my foreparents and even me perhaps through but that is not serving me as much anymore but it's occupying this third space that I'm noticing and then my partner was noticing that day when we had the conversation And I think that that, I'm really interested right now in exploring that third space. And I think that some good resources that are doing that work as well, that may not seem like overtly, and perhaps for a lot of people are not overtly spiritual texts, but I think you can not so, it's not so difficult to find a lens through which you can very clearly see like the spirit in these texts. Mm -hmm. Um, One is definitely Emergent Strategy. So Adrienne Marie Brown. So good. Such a good book. Such a good book. And she's coming out with another book, actually. I was listening to her podcast with her sister. And um, it's called Pleasure Activism. So that's coming out, I think, in like next year or so. It's coming out soon. Yeah, I totally saw that. Yes, Pleasure Activism. Yeah. I think you can pre-order it. Yes. Maybe. So people should, if you can, you should do that. I think that's, she's... Um, she's a great mind. She really is. Um, and she's very real and honest and accessible, which is like, have all those things and for someone to be like, really just forward thinking, but also like humble. Amazing. Like you just don't find people like that very often. So I would say for people to read emergent strategy, for sure. It is truly, I would say it's a seminal social justice text. And it's definitely a spiritual text for a lot of people. I know several divinity schools are literally reading it as a spiritual text. So um, if that was not enough for you. So there's that. I would also say another book, which is a classic, but is really also has a sort of spirit in it. Um, it's Pedagogy of the Oppressed by Paulo Freire, who was very much influenced by liberation theology. And I mean, it, most organizers will probably have read it because it's definitely a groundwork for that for community organizing, for sure, and political education. And any person who wants to sort of turn education on its head, period, will probably have read it. But if you haven't read it, you should. Uh, it's amazing. They've like translated it in good ways now where it's much more inclusive than it was originally. It's also if for folks who don't speak um, different languages outside of English. It is in English, which is helpful. There's also bilingual editions, which is cool. Um, so I would that's say cool. like that's 
yeah, yeah. Which is like, I think off, English is such, I sang for, in like choirs for many years and still do, but like I sing in like choirs where you sing all kinds of different languages. And it just makes you realize how ugly English is, especially American English is so ugly, like it's so limiting, you know, there's so many words. It's so binary in a lot of ways. We don't have yeah. a ton of in-between words. That's why we're constantly having to make up words and people are constantly fighting back, talk, talking about political correctness. It's like, no, English just sucks. Like, yeah. <laughs> that's where we're at. So anyway, um, it's cool to read in, in a couple different languages, but I would also recommend that as a text. Um, that'd be cool for people to read. And I'd also maybe say that Radical Dharma is definitely paving that third way of, it's de- I mean, it's obviously it's a, it's a Buddhist text, but I would also say that much like you echoed earlier, Caitlin, because all the authors are coming from, um, they're all black queer people and they're coming from a space where they engage with the black church in some, some way. They're all informed by that. They all come from different places. So there's other parts of their identities that definitely come through in their interpretations of the world. But it very much is a thing where I'm like, you can pull, like I'm seeing a lot of things that I definitely would have heard growing up, but I'm also seeing a lot of, it's said in, it's couched in language that is much more life-giving and ideas that are much more expansive. And in a way it's not like, there's no ownership I would like to say, or some like sort of weird territorialism about it which the church, the church capital C definitely struggles with. It's just sort of like, here's some wisdom. Clearly we've gleaned this from our life experience and also the teachings that we've, we've like learned over the years and are like, and the people around us. I don't know. It's a beautiful text. And I think that everyone should read it as well. And I think it definitely operates in that kind of third wave as well. So those are three like immediate resources I would suggest I'd also say Healing Justice Podcast is amazing. Please, everyone should listen to that. Um, if for no other reason than the host has the most soothing voice ever. It's amazing. <laughs> She's such a nice voice. Good to um, know. So, good to know. Yeah, it's a great, great podcast. And then also I would say How to Survive the End of the World, which just went on recess for the summer. But that's the podcast featuring Adrienne Marie Brown and her sister, and so it's wonderful to read alongside Emergent Strategy, but you can totally listen to it just by itself and you'll get so much wisdom from it and just realness and like laughter. So those are some things I'm thinking of immediately. And so other than that, I mean, as a general word of wisdom, I think that we're finally, I think, maybe getting to this point. I saw today a conference called Nuance with some pretty dope speakers it's happening, I think, in New York Cool. Um, at some point. Yeah. And not telling people to go to the conference necessarily, but just like the idea that we may finally be getting to a place where people in America, because I can really only speak for America, are getting to a place where black and white is not enough. And that we're finally acknowledging that there could be, I don't know, just a wild guess, shades of gray and everything, especially the sort of hegemonic structures that shape this entire country is amazing. And I'm really excited to see people ask deeper questions and to get out outside of these very boxed and limited ways of thinking. I think that it's a harder life to live. I think people choose sometimes to exist in the black and white because it is easier when you don't ask a lot of questions, even though you may constantly be grasping at like why something doesn't quite feel right. But I think that there's something really beautiful about existing in this sort of liminal gray space. Mm -hmm. And I think that that is, and especially, you know, speaking as a, 
millennial slash gen uh whatever z cusp um <laughs> that's apparently where i'm at because i was born in 95. our generations are basically the ones according to the people who study such things that are going to and we can see this that are about fluidity and that are embracing mm -hmm. about embracing the gray areas and embracing the in-between and so i'm very excited for everyone to question everything and in that process hopefully find space in that in-between that brings you life thank you so much yeah, for sure. Erica West is soon going to be getting their Master's in Divinity at the Vanderbilt Divinity School. You can connect with E through their website, about.me forward slash Erica underscore West, and on Twitter at unctie, U-N-C-T-I-E-E. To learn more about my work in the world, visit caitlinsch.com. Along with more episodes of Everything is Workable, you can find my blog, books, and art. You can also become a patron or leave a tip to help support the things that I do. This episode of Everything is Workable was made possible through the patronage of Gretchen Wagner, Julian and Shannon Hatch, Winita Budgen, and Margaret Prescott, among others. Thank you to Tajai Moore of More Music for the original theme song.